Rural America has been losing population for decades, seeing more large employers leave their communities, kids leaving for college and not coming back, leading to an older, poorer community than what once was. Economic development efforts can be tougher in rural areas because attracting employers and developers to less populated communities is an uphill battle. So, how do rural communities rise up to improve their quality of life and bring people back home? With creative economic development strategic employer recruitment, and a concerted effort to sustain existing economic pillars. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hutcher. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 4 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hutcher, President and Chief Executive Officer for Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So today we're going to be talking about economic development in rural communities. Um, In other words, how do rural communities grow jobs, uh, grow wages, and grow their economic in today's environment? Um, What challenges do rural communities face and how can they overcome it is a a question we often hear, Rachel, uh, and something we face daily in our job. And today we have a very special guest who has a lot of experience working in economic development in communities of all sizes, but has recently turned his time and attention to the economic challenges facing small and rural communities. Yes, today we are joined by Eric Doden, former president of the Indiana Economic Development Corporation and current president of Pago USA. It's a development firm that partners with small towns and rural communities. So welcome to Rural Health Rising, Eric. Thank you, JJ. It's great to be here. Thank you, Rachel. So, Eric, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and let our listeners get to know you? Well, I am uh, from uh, near and dear to my heart of rural communities because I'm from Butler, Indiana. I grew up in a town of about 2,500 people. And when I was 15, we moved to the metropolis of Auburn, Indiana, which is 11,000. And then I went to college at Hillsdale uh, College in Hillsdale, Michigan, which is another town of, I think, roughly 12,000. Uh, and then from there, I lived in cities like Washington, D.C., uh, L.A., um, Chicago, Indianapolis, and Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I've really watched what's happened um, in our rural communities uh, from living there. Uh, and so that's kind of my background of why I kind of have a heart for Pago USA and what our mission is there. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, let's start with the why. Uh, we do this on every episode of Rural Health Rising, so we can get to know our guests just a little bit better. So, Eric, what is your why? In other words, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, as I was growing up in these rural communities, one of the benefits that I had was just phenomenal mentorship. And those mentors created conditions that allowed me to to, to have a vision for my life that was beyond what I thought was possible. Um, for example, uh, I really didn't like school. In fact, I was rather poor at it. And my parents will vouch for the fact that I was not the best student. Uh, but I had mentors that really pushed me to go to college. I had mentors that pushed me to consider law school, uh, things that I would have never probably done on my own because there was these conditions that were created in this environment that allowed me to be successful or or achieve some level of, of, of success bigger than I thought I could achieve. And so what I really believe as a leader, and all of us are leaders in our own right, is that we have a responsibility to use our gifts and talents that God's given us to try to, to create conditions that help people uh, have um, more opportunities for themselves. And wh- why I do what I do is because I have a gift set of development and improvement and uh, bringing people together that allows um, a community to thrive and for people to then have more opportunities. And what I really enjoy about it is most of these people will never know my name. 
They'll never know who I am. They'll never know that I was involved, but they will see a special development or a special place to them. And if you guys have traveled, I know you have, we can all identify in our minds special places that we've experienced with loved ones and with our friends that have been meaningful to us. And somebody had to produce those places. And so that's probably uh, what really motivates me and why I get up in the morning and am excited every day about my job. Well, I've had the privilege to know you just uh, maybe about a year now, and I can tell you that's definitely your why. Uh, I have been uh, thrilled to work with you, and your passion is second to none. Uh, having you in a room with uh, the directors that we did and some community members, uh, I can definitely tell that that is, is your given why. Yeah, I would say anyone who knows Eric knows lack of passion is not anywhere on the table with this yeah. guy. So <laughs> <laughs> I do not like passion. Yes, that's right. Um, so speaking of your, you know, what you're doing now and what you've done before, um, tell us a little bit about Pago USA and what your organization does. Yeah, so when I worked with the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, we I began to see tools that these big cities were using to fix um, some of their blighted neighborhoods. And what I realized um, pretty early on was that some of those tools could be applied in our rural communities if we had a, a, a development of a big enough scale. And part of the challenge is if you're talking about a million dollar project, those tools don't really work. But if you're talking about a 15 or $18 million project, those tools work just as well in a rural community as they do in downtown Cincinnati. Uh, and so um, we started Pago USA because we have this skill set and background that allowed us to understand all the tools that are available from both federal and state and local government, as well as the private sector, so that we could bring those tools to smaller towns like uh, Hillsdale or Butler or Auburn or Van Wert, Ohio, uh, and, and, and be able to help them improve um, their neighborhoods and improve their communities with some of the same tools that are being used right now in large cities. So speaking of that, you again, you've been working in the economic development space for many years. As you just mentioned, you've done this at the state level and at the local level in mid-sized cities, in rural communities. So when we talk about rural communities in particular, give us the big picture. What makes rural communities struggle so much to maintain good jobs and vibrant economies? Yeah, so when I started studying ec economics at the state level, what I begin to see in our rural communities is the loss of population. That's probably the single biggest thing that you see uh, over a period of, of 10, 15 years. And it's not hard to see if you go to any uh, population growth chart and you put in a smaller town, you'll see that since about 1955, 1960, those towns have been either stagnant or declining in population. And of course, with a declining or stagnant population, there's going to be less economic activity and less economic um, potential. Uh, the other thing that, that we then begin to see is that, you know, the companies that are in smaller communities used to be owned by people that lived there and owned, between, you know, businesses there. And, and then you had consolidation around the world over the last 40 years. And so some of these same businesses that used to be locally owned are now owned, owned by large conglomerates, oftentimes maybe even companies that are overseas and, and they hire people that move to the community, but their, their primary focus is making a profit and not necessarily reinvesting some of that profit back in the community. And so that leads to a loss of capital. Um, in addition, as some of our wealthier uh, parts of our community have been able to travel more frequently, what we've seen is they'll have a house in Naples, Florida, or they'll have a house in, in Wyoming. And so they have their fun in other parts of the country during certain parts of the year. And so they're less motivated to, to invest in quality of place. So if you kind of look at some of the old historic 
infrastructure, like these churches in these small communities are absolutely stunning. You know, they're all brick or stone and they're just gorgeous. And they're that they, they, you could tell that they had a lot of architectural uh, talent around them. And then they had theaters and hotels and different things. Well, those things begin to decline uh, because people begin to find other ways to spend or invest their money outside of the local community, especially small communities. And then the last thing that we've seen is if you take the, the, the core assets of the community, uh, as people begin to sell them, people buy them from other communities. And so now you have absentee owners that don't live every day in your community, and they often don't take care of the property in the same way that a, a owner that lives there would take care of it. And so now you got the absentee ownership problem as well. So those are some of the big pictures. Well, then what happens over time is as you lose population, you lose capital, you start to see uh, you know, your buildings decline and, and get in disrepair. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy with people deciding that this isn't a place for me to raise my family or grow my career. Well, for any of our listeners who live and work in rural communities, uh, this probably sounds very familiar and may reflect their own experiences. Um, as this loss of jobs, population and such begins to occur in rural communities, many hospitals and healthcare providers become one of the largest, if not the largest, employers in their community. And Hillsdale Hospital is certainly no different. We're the third largest employer in our county and the second largest in the city. With that said, uh, Eric, what is the relationship between rural healthcare and the economies of the communities that they serve? Yeah. So if you think about what is the key thing for us to be productive, one of the very key things is our health. And when you're healthy, you can be productive, right? So some of my most unproductive times, of course, is when I've been unhealthy. And and so when you're in a, a smaller community and you have access to, to good health care uh, and, and good health care habits, as well as good health care uh, experiences, um, your productivity is going to rise. Um, your quality of life is going to rise. And, and things are um, going to be better for you in your community. Um, if that healthcare access isn't readily available, then things can get often more challenging uh, and, and frankly can lead people to move from your community for that alone. Uh, so if you think about the pillars of a community, church is one, uh, another one is business, another one is education, another one is government, but certainly healthcare and hospitals is right up there with one of the key pillars of any community, in my opinion. So this brings up um, an important point. And for our listeners, if you haven't listened yet, go back to episode one, where we talk a lot about the challenge rural hospitals face when it comes to reimbursement for the care that we provide. I think it's important to note that part of why we face such challenges in that area is because a vast majority, in our case, 70 percent of our patients are covered under Medicare and Medicaid, which doesn't reimburse at as high of a rate as commercial insurers. So the economic challenges of rural communities when you have less jobs that are offering commercial insurance because you have fewer employers who've moved out over the years, that has a real direct correlation um, to the economic challenges of the rural hospitals and healthcare providers. So, JJ, you've been at Hillsdale Hospital for a decade now. How have you seen this play out over those years here in our community? Well, you answered the question in <laughs> in the question. Uh, yes, uh, we have witnessed that. So as industries and manufacturers uh, leave our area for a variety of reasons, uh, 
They uh, have left in many cases for uh, better opportunities, closures because they no longer are manufacturing that product. Uh, We've witnessed it all, the full gamut over the last two decades in Hillsdale. One of our largest employers two decades ago took about 60 percent of the Hillsdale city workforce uh, and depleted it because of some infighting and some uh, representation of union coverage that they wanted and they the, the organization did not want it. And so as a result of that, the community suffered because that plant moved to another part of our nation. Uh, and, and, and that's what's happening as this becomes more mobile. So when that occurs, we lose a good portion of commercial insurance. And whereas we would see maybe a higher uh, case index of better paying uh, insurance companies to the ratio of our government insurance companies, uh, that has changed over time. And in the last decade that I've been here, we've witnessed an increase in the number of government payers. Now, government payers is Medicaid and Medicare. These are individuals that uh, are obviously because of the age or their their factor of life. And unfortunately, not having the wherewithal or the means, uh, they get Medicaid. And that pays us at a much lower reimbursement than commercial insurance does. So as your your business and industry, which offers very good at times uh, commercial insurance that pays hospitals and physicians' offices much better than government payers pay us, those are great economic times for your community. But when those jobs disappear for whatever reason, uh, we in, in healthcare begin to see that play out live in the number of commercial insurance that goes away and the number of state assistance and federal programs that increase with a much lower reimbursement to the hospital. And that has impacted us over time. And so this is why small rural hospitals, Rachel, since 2010, really when we start looking at it, have have suffered because industries and manufacturers that are being enticed to other places, you know, in other locations around the country and, and not really necessarily where the infrastructure for roads aren't the best in smaller rural communities and those types of challenges, uh, they have witnessed their hospitals close. And that is something we will not allow happen here in Hillsdale, Michigan. So speaking of, do you know the numbers on, you know, now we have about 70 percent Medicare and Medicaid. Do you have an idea of 10 or 20 years ago what that looked like, how significant that shift has been? You know, when we looked at the numbers uh, after the closure of a very large plant in our community, uh, there was a significant uptick in in, uh, government payers. And I would say that when we looked at this, it was a 2 percent loss every year. Uh, for a good stretch of time. Now, I haven't looked at it since, I would say, about seven years ago because the numbers have been pretty consistent. For about 10 years now, um, roughly seven solid years, we've been looking at 70% payer mix. Prior to that, it was a much richer payer mix. When I say richer, I don't mean uh, in the sense of hubris or anything of that nature. What I mean is the commercial insurance that pays us more was a better mix in the community than those who had to have government insurance. So, We witnessed that. And then now we're at the point where I don't know if it can grow any bigger, Rachel, because if we grow any any larger with our government payers, that's going to have significant negative outcomes for our hospital and ultimately for this community, because in most of these cases, it's just at cost and many times below cost to provide these services. And then notwithstanding. We also have a a situation in our community where individuals are underinsured or still uninsured, believe it or not. 
people are uninsured. Those are charity care. And about 12% of what we give back to this community is in the form of charity care. So not only are we taking it from you know the government payers who set what their rates are. We don't get to negotiate with the government. They set those rates. Uh, and even with commercial insurance, we don't get to negotiate. We have no power. I, I don't have any ability to sit down with them and negotiate like larger uh, hospitals or institutions can. I can't. That's not available to me. So we have suffered significantly through the years based on those challenges that have resulted from manufacturing industry being driven out of the community. So one of the difficult things for us and our peers in rural health is recruiting talent. And we're not alone, and we're not the only ones. Rural employers and uh, even employers in mid-sized cities have a more difficult time recruiting employees as well. So how does this impact a rural community's ability to bring in those employers in the first place? You know, that's got to be a tough sell. Yeah, it is. And, and what, you know, what we see from, you know, employers that are looking at growing or expanding jobs or relocating jobs, you know, one of the key questions they have is, can I attract talent to move there? And, and the statistics bear out that it's difficult to do in a rural community. Uh, and so that the next question to me is kind of obvious. Well, how do we create a rural community in which people would be attracted to move there? And um, I will tell you that there are, are rural communities that do a great job with this because they have uh, a community-wide effort to clean up uh, their messes. And um, I, I, as I traveled the United States and studied economic development with some of the world-class cities, uh, they, they, I asked them, what is the key to being able to attract and retain talent and to have a vibrant community? And they said, hey, we have one simple rule, clean up your crap, but they used a different word. And, and so uh, what's important is that you look around you, because sometimes what we do and we live, and I know this from when I lived in Butler and Auburn, you get so used to driving by a vacant building that's, that's in disrepair that you forget it's there. But if you're a new person coming to check out the community, you see them all and they're really obvious. And so part of what we've encouraged communities to do at Pago USA is our whole mantra is uh, is to restore vibrancy to the American village. And to us, what that means is that your core assets must be restored and usable generally in your downtowns and generally all three levels. And when you restore vibrancy, you become attractive. People are attracted to a vibrant, healthy um, awesome community that has that's going somewhere. And when you know maybe a third or two thirds or in some cases three quarters of your buildings are in a state of disrepair in your urban downtown or your or your rural downtown, that they're not going to be attracted to that. So, Eric, when you were at the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, I know you visited all 92 counties in the state of Indiana, and the vast majority of those counties are rural in rural areas. So if you're reflecting back on that, could you see a difference in the health of the communities and their economies based on whether or not they had a local hospital and access to local health care? How, how do communities with that and without that differ from one another? Well, I will say this. If you were in a, in a, in a community in one of the more rural counties, um, you better be close to Bloomington or close to a, a regional health care hub, because if you weren't, that was a very difficult place to grow the economy, if not almost impossible. Um, so uh, in other communities where they were a little more remote, and I define remote, if you're, with, if you're not within 45 minutes of a regional healthcare facility, then you're kind of in a place where you need healthcare. 
because um, about a, a 45 minutes to 50 minutes is about the the tipping point, in my opinion, for where, like, if you look at Hillsdale, you're you're about an hour and 10 minutes from, you know, different cities in your region. And so that's why you are a prime importance for your hospital to be at Hillsdale, because you're not quite close enough uh, to be near a regional hospital hub. Uh, and so, um, you know, from my perspective and traveling all these counties, it really became evident what counties had access to good health care and what that did to their economies and what uh, counties did not and how that impacted their economies as well in a negative way. All right. So we're going to move into really an important question that I hope you can answer, Eric, and I know you will. But uh, this is one that's going to be heavy on the minds of our listeners. It's heavy on my mind. Uh, and, and what can rural communities do or what should they be doing right now? Uh, to grow their economies. Uh, what does effective economic development in rural communities actually even look like? And I've had a chance to talk to you a little bit about this, and this is where I see your passion come out, because this is a question heavy on minds of executives in town halls and county governments. How do we do it? And that's a question I have for you. Well, let me start, you know, big picture. Um, number one, uh, we have a simple rule. You cannot fix what you don't own. And so one of the things we look at is who's willing to take capital and invest it in your community. Uh, and so when you look at the, the major businesses, I think one of the benefits of leadership in the rural community is you can bring each other together, you can convene with one another, and you can have a strategy. But the second thing that I've seen in rural communities is they all tend to want to hire consultants for a plan. And I went to you know 92 counties. Every county had a plan, but not, almost nobody executed their plan in, after years of planning. And what I've told our rural uh, communities that hire us uh, to do what we do is let's, let's focus more on action. Let's go buy the 10 buildings. Let's go buy the 20 buildings because that action forces us to plan. But once we own the buildings, we can't just plan. We have to fix them. And so, you know, I emphasize more action and then plan and then action rather than plan, no action, plan some more, no action, plan some more, which is what I've seen. And then I think the other thing is just to acknowledge in the room that, yes, we have a challenge and we have a problem. So if I go to a place that is like um, Fort Wayne, and I would say this to our leaders in Fort Wayne, one of the challenges of Fort Wayne is that they're really pretty good, but they're not great. But you know what the enemy of great is, is being pretty good. When I go to Van Wert, Ohio, they recognize they have challenges. And so they're not stuck in good. They want to go from challenge to great. And it's a different mentality and different mindset. But what I would say that kind of gets in the way sometimes is, you know, there's a lot of uh, turf wars. There's a lot of fiefdoms. There's a lot of people that, you know, don't like each other. Maybe they played against each other in high school in some sport or they you know, dated the same person or, you know, whatever, because in small communities, we all know each other. And sometimes familiarity can breed contempt. And what I think as we become adults and mature, we have to learn how to take that contempt that we may have developed for one another and get past that, forgive each other, and then figure out for the greater good, how we work together to get something headed in the right direction. But so often what I see is that these, com these personality conflicts become the driver behind a lack of progress within a small community. So with that in mind, and I, I've learned this from working with you, Eric, which is that not one 
organization or one person or one entity can be fully responsible and make this happen. It's it's those different groups coming together. So I actually want to pose this question to both of you. Um, for rural hospitals in particular, what role should hospitals be playing in that process of economic development? And Eric, we'll start with you with your perspective as the economic development guy. Yeah, I've, I've really encouraged our hospital leadership to be uh, one of the primary roles is to be a convener of the leaders. If you think about it as the hospital, you touch everybody. And, and as a hospital, you're serving every business. And what tends to happen in the business world is we get lost in our own industry, in our own space, in our own world. And we don't necessarily come together and uh, really work on solving problems as a community. We're just busy solving problems in our business. And so I think uh, being a convener of the talent and then bringing them together uh, all, uh, is, is a really important part of what a, a hospital a leadership can do. And I also think that the, uh, they can encourage uh, the capital to reinvest, uh, not just in the hospital, but to also reinvest in uh, really important assets within the community uh, in a way that will probably be taken better because you're not trying to make money off of them. You're trying to just have a better community that can increase their talent and increase the access to, to capital themselves. And so um, for, from my perspective, those are two really important roles. One is convene people to get them to help solve problems. Two is encourage and convene them to help uh, put capital into deals as partners together to make sure that we can get some of these projects done. Now, from the hospital perspective, JJ, as the guy who spends a lot of time, we spend a lot of time here, especially right now in the middle of a global pandemic, focusing on fixing the things that we need to do and taking care of what needs to be done here. And it can be hard to take the time and invest the resources in looking externally and supporting the community in these other ways, aside from just providing health care and sustaining our own operations. So, JJ, what do you think hospitals can and should be doing when it comes to the economic development efforts in their communities? Well, to Eric's point, uh, we have served in that role of convener. Uh, we've done that, and we have a great opportunity ahead of us to do it better and and to do it more often. It's typically in times of crisis that we find ourselves being the convener, and that's not appropriate. That is not forward-thinking, and that does not move us any further. It just identifies how do we handle the crisis at hand. Um, so we have to do a little better job at, at that. The second issue is we as, we as we at hospitals, large and small, we've already established that typically these individual hospitals are of the largest employers, and we are contributing back in the local economies millions of dollars. And we have to be somewhat careful in which way we give those dollars. Um, for example, we partner with the Economic Development of Hillsdale County, uh, and we give a considerable amount of money to fund that project. And And to be at the table and to help make some of those decisions are very important. There is so much need, Rachel, in our community that there's not a, a week, and you know this, you get the calls, that goes by that we're not requested to give lots of money to lots of projects. And we have to learn to prioritize those. And maybe not so much in the past, we've had executives uh, in hospital systems, I'm not just picking on Hillsdale, but that are going to the country club and, and buying memberships to things that really we shouldn't be focused on, right? Uh, we need to build better relationships, in my opinion, uh, bringing these individuals to the table. And what we witnessed when Eric was here, uh, we brought some 
top leadership of Hillsdale County to the table. And the conversation was as it is today. It was phenomenal to hear some of the strategies that, yes, look outside the walls of your community, that you are going to go by those buildings and ignore those because it's what we do. But for that person coming in, Eric brought that to my attention during our last meeting. And I thought, man, and I took a drive that night and I thought, sweet goodness, this is true. I have forgot about that building and this building and this building. That's not going to attract individuals. And so when we come to the table, we do have a little bit, a little bit of capital that we can bring. And that is somewhat of, of a motivator. Uh, and it's the key relationships that we play with board members who are on the hospital board, who are also involved in city government and in county government to convene those together. But then the third thing that I would say is a call to action, because we all talk as Eric said, we've all had the eight-hour meeting at the county library where we talk about, you know, we all put on our outfits and we do our conversations and we put the stickies all over the wall and, and we put together a beautiful plan. It's presented at the next board of trustee meeting and it dies. And pretty soon someone says, well, remember when we brought that firm in? And it dies. And so the important thing is is to, to make it live and to make it real and to understand the importance of doing something with it. And and having that responsibility as the largest employer, one of the largest employers, is a pretty significant responsibility that we have. But I think as we convene, as we contribute, it is now then a call to action. We have to do something different. Right. And I would say for those community or for hospitals in those communities where you're not involved right now in economic development, it's not anything you've ever thought of, a good first step is to look at what economic development organizations or entities exist in your community and get involved with those. JJ sits on the board for the Economic Development Partnership of Hillsdale County. I sit on the board for the Economic Development Corporation for the city of Hillsdale. So the hospital has a voice in those organizations and on those boards that are trying to make things happen in their community. And so if you're you're hearing all this and and you're in a rural community or you're a rural hospital leader and you're thinking, uh, how, where do I even begin? That can be a good first step so that you can start to engage in some of those conversations and then have the opportunity from there to become that convener as well. Yes. And so it's been a pretty heavy conversation so far, Rachel. Uh, so now that we've discussed all those challenges, right, lots of them uh, and struggles with rural communities today, um, I, I want to also talk about the strengths and successes of small rural communities. And Eric, among all people uh, here today, can tell us about seeing those strengths in those communities, far greater outreach than we would ever dream of. So, so Eric, when it comes to economic development, what strengths uh, do rural areas and small towns have compared to that of urban and suburban uh, counterparts? In other words, uh, what encouraging things do you see happening when you work with those small towns that gives you like the, wow, this is my why? Yeah, so uh, I'll talk about Van Wert, Ohio for a minute because um, they're doing something super special in that community. And the strength that I see is uh, the relate the strong bond of relationships between the leaders. And then because of that, you know, long term, strong bond, how quickly they're able to trust and move forward. So, you know, in a bigger city, trust is an issue in part because you often meet with people that you don't know at all, where when you go to Van Wert, we all know each other. Uh, and so that trust um, allowed them to uh, within six weeks, when they started meeting with Pego USA, to put uh, $3 million into a fund and begin to buy up their downtown. And they've now bought, this is the Community Foundation, has bought uh, 40 plus buildings in the downtown Van Wert. 
which is nearly 50% of their distressed assets. And they're now in with Pego USA and Model Group, they're planning uh, the first phase, which is an $18 million project with 10 to 13 buildings being restored. But it was that trust with each other and then that, that ability to move quickly, which is another thing I see in small communities. They can move quickly. They can pivot fast. They do not have to have long, drawn-out processes that you sometimes see in the larger communities that want to have 17 meetings to make one decision. Uh, and I know, Rachel, you know from working with me that I love 17 meetings and one decision, right? Oh, yeah. That's your favorite thing. <laughs> I'm thinking not. Yeah, like no, zero, I'm thinking like zero meetings. Zero meetings, a phone call, it's, the exactly. end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in these small communities, they have uh, they have flexibility and also they have desire. They desire a better community. And so when you combine talent, trust, desire, resources, almost always in a small community, I've never seen a situation in which they don't have money. They have plenty of money. Uh, what they have to have is a vision that they're all buying into. And they're now doing that. And so over the next you know, three or four years, you're going to see something special, I think, go on in a place like Van Wert, Ohio. And that could be replicated around the country. Well, I have to say, this has been a great conversation, and I feel like we could probably talk for four more hours about all of these topics. Let's do it. Okay, yeah. Hey, listeners, you guys want a four-hour episode? (laughs) I mean, Eric is phenomenal. He's an expert in his field, and I'm privileged just to be able to get to know him a little bit more. And uh, Rachel, it's it's been a phenomenal uh, episode. Yeah, and honestly, when we were trying to prepare for this episode, JJ, we were kind of saying to each other, how do we pick, how do we think of questions we want? How do we focus this conversation? Because there is so much that we could say and that we could get to. So thank you, Eric, for spending some time with us and our listeners today. Hopefully we'll have you back again sometime and get into some more issues we just didn't have time for in one episode. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, JJ. And now for one of my favorite parts of our show. On every episode, we feature a story from one of our patients. Today, we have a story from Kathy, who is actually an employee at Hillsdale Hospital, as well as a member of our community. Kathy has been in the middle of cancer treatment when she experienced a high fever, which is an automatic trip to the ER for cancer patients. This is Kathy's story. I came in because I had a fever and there's a protocol that's that's performed for cancer patients with a fever. The the nurses that attended were were just fantastic and they they just were so compassionate and I've been to big hospitals with my parents and some of my own treatments and it's different here. It's just different in a really good way. I just love her. Kathy is one of the most wonderful people you will ever meet. And when she shared this story with us, it was so evident how much it meant to her to be cared for by her own Hillsdale Hospital work family. And that's something special that we get to experience more in rural hospitals just because our communities are so tight knit. Before we close, Eric, we like to do a fun segment at the end of the show with all of our guests. So we know you grew up in a rural community. You mentioned Butler, Indiana, and I'm sure you have some great stories. So we want to know, what is your most unique rural experiences or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? Well, I want to go with one of my favorite memories because when I grew up, we didn't really have the Internet, right? So uh, we played a lot of sandlot baseball. And if you know anything about rural communities, there was never a day ever in the summer where you could not find a baseball game breaking out somewhere in the city. 
and then of course we try to go down to the dairy tree and get the biggest shake that we could consume. And uh, I almost felt like I grew up in the Norman Rockwell, you know, kind of movie where, or kind of scene where I was just in these, you know, rural community enjoying it. And the other thing I will tell you is, you know, we also used to ride horses from time to time, which you can do kind of in a rural community because it's not as many people. And so you can kind of get away with that. But I will relay this one story in which I learned the importance of making sure that when you took the horse out, that the barn door was closed. Because if the barn door is open when you're riding back to the barn, that does not end super well uh, when the horse decides that they want to get back in that stall with you on it. (laughs) (laughs) What a story. Yes. What a story. So thank you again, uh, Eric, for joining us today. We appreciate your time and your expertise. Uh, Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll talk about COVID-19 and how the global pandemic is impacting rural hospitals in particular. We'll be interviewing someone who has been on the front lines since March. So don't miss this firsthand perspective on what we are all facing. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Original music and audio engineering by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Eric Doden, president of Pago USA. For more interviews like this and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.